Good evening, everybody. Good evening, everyone. My name is Buell Januzzi, and I'm the current director of Stewart Observatory. And I'm very pleased to be able to join all of you tonight to celebrate the dedication 90 years ago tomorrow of what has become one of the world's leading research centers in astronomy and astrophysics. And it all started with an act of faith and philanthropy. And you're going to hear a little bit of that from Tom Fleming. And Tom has been leading the public nights here since 1999. It's a fantastic program. And Tom has also been integral to our undergraduate advising program for many years. He was just recently recognized by the National Association for Collegiate Advisors and will be getting honored next year. In October. In October. In Salt Lake, yeah. Uh, so we're very proud not only of what Tom does with these outreach efforts, but also uh, with our undergraduates. And he's planned a, a very interesting evening tonight. And with no additional delay, Tom Fleming. Thank you. Thank you, Buell. Welcome, everyone, to a very special Stewart Observatory public evening lecture. And we also welcome those of you listening to us on the World Wide Web via iTunes U or streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. Now, on April 23rd, 1923, 90 years ago tomorrow, the ceremony took place here at Stewart Observatory. The program included the university band, an address welcome from the new president of the University of Arizona, Cloyd Heck Marvin, uh, an address by Vesto Slifer, giving greetings from sister observatory, Lowell Observatory up in Flagstaff, music by the University Quartet, an address by Robert Aiken, probably the foremost uh, authority on double stars in astronomy uh, of the day, and an address by Andrew Ellicott Douglas. And uh, of course, the acceptance from the Board of Regents. And there's actually what Steward looked like. Yeah. <laughs> this is the platform that was erected for the ceremony in 1923. There used to be uh, steps going up to the front door of Steward. This was erected on the northwest side of the building. And there we go. There's the uh, platform where that program you just saw was carried out uh, 90 years ago tomorrow. And then on the 24th, here's the Tucson Citizen, Stewart Observatory, formally dedicated with appropriate ceremonies at U of A, and gift is formally accepted for U of A by the Chancellor. And there's a picture of it and a nice description of the ceremony. But how did it happen? Well, it all happened because of this guy who the more I learn about him, the more I'm just amazed uh, about what an amazing individual he was. Uh, and he never got a PhD. Back then, you could be a professor, you could be uh, a dean, a college president, you could even invent a whole new science and not have a PhD. Uh, he worked for the Harvard College Observatory from 1891 to 1893. The Lowell Observatory up in Flagstaff from 1894 to 1901. He then worked for Northern Arizona Normal School. Uh, he taught Latin, geography, Spanish, and physics uh, from 1906, excuse me, 1902 to 1906. Then in 1906, the president of the University of Arizona, a guy named uh, Kendrick Babcock, hired him to become the head of the physics department here. In fact, the case can be made, and I don't see Elliot Chu here, so I'm going to make the case, that Andrew Ellicott Douglas also founded our physics department, as we now know it. Because I went to special collections and looked at the university catalog from 1891 to everyone to 1906. Back in the 1890s, there was a school, there was a school of natural science with a physics program. But all of the instructors who taught physics had joint appointments with engineering and mining. They were mostly mineralogists. There was a mathematician who taught physics. Douglas was the first person that the university brought here to teach physics. Uh, 
And in 1908, he actually changed the name of the department to the Department of Physics and Astronomy. And that's what it was called from 1908 until 1922. Also, uh, in the university bio for Kendrick Babcock, as fifth president of the University of Arizona, his greatest accomplishment as president, hiring Andrew Ellicott Douglas. <laughs> that's what it says. Uh, now, in 1910 to 1911, he actually was the interim president of the University of Arizona when Babcock suddenly resigned and they had to search for a new president, which then they hired, a guy named Arthur Wilde. From 1915 to 1918, he was dean of the College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. And for those of you who work here at the university, you know, that's kind of funny because everything, nothing's new, right? We all come back, because right now, we're once again called the College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. From 1918, 1918 is actually when Stewart Observatory came into being as an organization, and he was its first director until 1937. And then from 1937 to his retirement, this gentleman retired from the university at age 90. 1958, he was director of the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research. Now, in his early life, when he lived up in Flagstaff, he actually worked for this gentleman named Percival Lowell. And there they are, there he is at the 24-inch telescope at the Lowell Observatory, looking at Mars, sketching it, and there's Percival Lowell doing the same thing. Problem was that Douglas was actually a very good scientist. He worried about things like errors and um, inaccuracies in measurement, especially using the human eyeball. And his boss didn't worry so much about those things. And so he started to doubt the scientific methods of his boss. And it actually came to a head at the end of the 19th century. On December 7th, 1900, Douglas observed a projection. That's the term he used, a wisp of light beyond the terminator on the surface of Mars. And as he was wont to do, he wired information to Lowell in Boston, because Lowell always wanted to know the results of the previous night's observing. Now, he passed this information on to his friends at Harvard and European astronomers, and a game of telephone ensued, except it probably was a game of telegraph. Somehow, the press in Europe reported that Douglas had received a signal, a message from the inhabitants of Mars. Political cartoon from the Rocky Mountain News, January 21st, 1901, and this, Douglas had a sense of humor. He had clipped this out, and it was in, it's in his papers. And there are the trusts, right? J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, all those guys, and they're shouting up to this guy on Mars, the owner of the Earth. Just wait until I get up there, young fellow, and you'll be sorry you signaled. Well, of course, Douglas was mortified, absolutely mortified and disturbed by this incident because he was getting calls from reporters all over the world. He was getting uh, requests by mail, telegraphs, wanting to know what did the Martian say. And all he did was observe a little white wispy thing on the disk of Mars. He expressed his doubts about Lowell's credibility in a letter to William Putnam, who was the observatory's business manager. Bad move. Why? Because Putnam happened to be Percival Lowell's brother-in-law. Putnam showed the letter to Lowell. Douglas was fired the very next day. He received a telegram from Lowell, your uh, services are no longer required. So he found himself out of a job in 1901. He ran for probate judge of Coconino County and won because he was very popular among the populace of Flagstaff. He generated a lot of business by spending Lowell's money right in Flagstaff. And he also taught at Arizona Northern Normal School. Uh, here is the first telescope at the University of Arizona. It was actually purchased by one of the regents here, Merrill Freeman, in 1891. Now, this particular picture was taken, I believe, in 1906, not long after Douglas. There he is in the Music Man hat. Uh, this was on a pier originally to the east of Old Main, to the west of Old Main, where the fountain is now, and then they moved it to the east of Old Main. It was a um, four-inch refractor made by Brashear of uh, Pittsburgh, and that was the primary instrument when Douglas first arrived. But even then, as head of the physics department, he was thinking of a way to build a big telescope, bigger than Lowell's telescope, but he needed the money. Uh, 
This building, which we know today as the Communications Building, in 1909, it was built as Science Hall, and the Physics Department was on the ground floor of this building. Uh, Douglas was able to get a used 8-inch refractor on loan from Harvard, from his former boss, E.C. Pickering, and there was a telescope, an 8-inch refractor, in a roll-off shed on top of this building from 1909 until 1922. Uh, and then he sent it back to Harvard once the new big telescope was uh, commissioned. Douglas went to the state legislature. I've, I've spent a lot of time looking through his letters and all the letters he wrote to state representatives trying to get money for a telescope. And it never really worked. Um, finally, and I don't know how he met this woman, but he hooked up with Lavinia Stewart wealthy widow from Oracle, Arizona. Her husband, Henry, had made his fortune as a merchant. He owned the goods store. He was Mr. Drucker of, of Oracle, Arizona. And not only did Mrs. Stewart have wealth, she also was an amateur astronomer. She owned her own little three-inch telescope, and she used to love to show the planets to her grandchildren. And she wanted to memorialize her husband. So the stars aligned, and President Rufus von Kleinschmidt of the university and Douglas were able to convince Lavinia Stewart to give $60,000. The gift was announced on October the 19th of 1916. Anonymous friend gives you a $60,000. Money to be used to buy a telescope of huge size. And the details of President von Kleinschmidt, once the announcement was made, the morning of October the 18th, he canceled classes for the rest of the day and they had a bonfire and a pep rally to, yeah, it was a pep rally to actually celebrate a grant. But it was the biggest grant the university had ever gotten to that time. And um, Douglas had hopes that, uh, and in fact the observatory is named after her husband, Henry Stewart. Douglas had hopes that there would be a telescope up and running by 1918, 1919 at the latest. He even signed a contract with Warner and Swayze of Cleveland, Ohio, to build this telescope. And I think he was going to go to Carl Zeiss in Deutschland, in Germany, right, to get the mirror. Problem was World War I was going on, and we got involved in it. And Warner and Swayze had a lot of war contracts. So the telescope was put on hold. I love this photo. This photo was taken in 1919, soon before the groundbreaking for Stewart Observatory after the war ended. This is 2nd Street. This is the corner of 2nd Cherry. This is where we're sitting right now, right there. It was an empty field. It was used by the College of Agriculture as an ostrich farm. Uh, you can see in the background, there's Old Main. There's the College of Ag. It's still there today. And there's A Mountain. Right? And soon they had the groundbreaking there at uh, the corner of Cherry and 2nd. As the building went up, here's a, a shot taken in 1920. Uh, Professor Edwin Frost, director of Yerkes Observatory, was there visiting as the building was going up. The dome itself was designed by a gentleman named Godfrey Sykes, who also uh, designed the Lowell Observatory dome for Douglas back in the 1890s. So uh, here the dome was made uh, at an off-campus location here in Tucson. It's a metal frame which then they put these wood slats across it. It's wooden on the inside and then covered with canvas on the outside. Here is the dome frame uh, installed on the building. This picture was taken in March of 1921. Uh, the building itself was designed by the local architecture firm of Lyman and Place. They were the architects. The building was completed in August of 1921. Now, the telescope itself was built in Cleveland, Ohio. The mirror is what took the time. Zeiss wasn't available after World War I. They went to a company called Spencer Lens Company in Buffalo, New York. And apparently, the first couple of blanks that they made cracked. Uh, they went to an electric fired furnace, had a little bit better results. They finally got a decent blank that could be sent to the Brashear Company in uh, Pittsburgh, who did the polishing of the mirror. Uh, the telescope itself arrived in Tucson in July of 1921, but it wasn't until July 10th that the 36-inch mirror arrived here at the University of Arizona. And Douglas, with the help of two former students, installed it himself. It took him five days to install. 
install it. It was ready to go June 5th, July 15th, and there was bad weather and a problem with the clock drive. So he had to wait two days before first light. First light was July 17th, 1922, with an eyepiece they looked at Venus. The first photograph was taken on August 10th of 1922, and of course, he photographed Mars. Okay, because Mars was one of his obsessions as well. And this, of course, uh, of interest to us, before the telescope was even dedicated, September of 1922, the very first steward public evening. Public invited to observatory Thursday night. This ran in the Citizen in September of 22. And one of the, uh, you may have read in the press releases for this talk, one of the uh, things that I did was go to our friends at the Tree Ring Lab and pull out some 16 millimeter film from the 1930s. Douglas uh, was obsessed with uh, uh, filming once he got a hold of a camera. And uh, although most of his film is tree ring related, this is a very neat, look at that. There's Professor Edwin Carpenter, the second director of Stewart Observatory, and a gentleman I have not identified. They're slewing the 36-inch telescope. They grab it from the top and move it over. Now, this was a Newtonian telescope. So you had to, you had to go up on this elevated platform and observe from this, the, the, the top of the telescope. And there's this gentleman looking through the telescope. He's very happy about it. Now, I'm not quite sure what this event was. You won't see Douglas in this because he's the cameraman. But uh, there are a lot of well-dressed people looking through the telescope. So either he had guests or it was a public evening. I'd like to think it was a public evening, okay? Uh, but it is possible that the gentleman who was helping through the telescope was the son of E.C. Pickering. That's my guess of who it was, but I can't confirm that. Yeah. I wonder who that guy is. I mean, he's just... I like that hat. And then here, gentleman leaving Stewart Observatory on the outside. Okay, now we get tree ring stuff. So let's move back to this. So there's this first Stewart public evening. And of course, here's what Stewart looked like in 1928. And again, there was a long road coming out from campus, and it was surrounded by trees where the psychology building is now. There was a tennis court. And uh, in the 1920s, most of the work was done actually, Stewart was involved in a big national, actually international program arranged by Edwin Hubble to measure more uh, distances to galaxies to go with, and, and primarily a lot of spectroscopy wasn't done at Stewart, it was direct imaging on photographic plates. So they were looking for Cepheid variable stars and other galaxies to measure their distances to report them back to Edwin Hubble. Um, here's the classroom. The ground floor of Stewart Observatory today is divided into cubicles and used for graduate student offices. But there's a wall right here now that separates the staircase from the lobby area. But this doubled as the lobby and the classroom. And the door that you enter today wasn't there back then. Right over here is where our little plaque hangs today that says it's a National Historic Site. And speaking of students, the very first bachelor's degree in astronomy was awarded in 1929 to a gentleman named Philip C. Keenan, who, if you know something about astronomy, knows that he went on to the Yerkes Observatory, and then he went on to Ohio State University, and he's well known for the spectral typing system, the Morgan Keenan system of stars. And he got, he was the first bachelor's degree awarded here at Stewart Observatory. Um, here's a picture of Ed Carpenter, the president of the university, Chance. This guy is named Lundmark. Uh, he was a visiting Swedish astronomer, and uh, Douglas. Even in the early 30s, they knew that they had to move the 36-inch telescope. His battle to keep the corner of Speedway and Campbell from being rezoned for commercial failed. And he knew that the city was going to encroach on the university. The university was going to encroach on the observatory. And they were thinking of moving the telescope out to what is now Squirrel National Park East. But um, it was the Depression. They didn't have the money to do it. Uh, another video that I can show you 
is, let's see here, let's go back here. It is video, this one right here. If I go there, and then, oh, he took lots of videos of different colleges that he visited, different observatories all over the world. But it is right after this gentleman here. There we go. Again, here we are outside of Stewart Observatory. There's A.E. Douglas. And this was taken in the 1930s. Remember, he retired when he was 90, so he was still pretty old in the 1930s. There's Professor Lamarck from Sweden. There's Ed Carpenter, the second director of Stewart Observatory, coming out of that gorgeous. This gentleman was a student, and he ended up founding, helping found the RAND Corporation after he got out of the war. He was a brilliant mathematician. And there is Professor Lamarck and the beautiful front door, which uh, was taken out, and that was boarded up in 1960. And there's Professor Douglas. Okay, so uh, back to this. There's a shot of Stewart uh, taken in 1940 by one of the secretaries. Today we call them administrative assistants. She was taking flying lessons. Her name was Carolyn Royalty. And uh, so here's a shot of Second Street and Cherry. There's Stewart. The only things that exist today are Stewart, Bear Down Jim. And what else? Oh, this was the campus infirmary. This is now the science building. It belongs to our friends over at the Lunar Planetary Lab. But again, you can see what's going on there. Of course, this picture taken in 1951 in color, the first and second directors of Stewart Observatory outside the beautiful front door. Ah, this is interesting. This was a postcard shot taken in 1959. We have, this is a four-inch Zeiss refractor, we call it the James Telescope. This dome is now on top of the building we're standing on, we're standing in right now. Oh, not this one, but the other wing. And this is where you'll find the Alvin Clark Telescope tonight, if you want to go look through it. Um, here is what happened in 1960. There was the first addition built on Stewart Observatory. Eventually, you're going to be going up here to a dome that's on top of there. Uh, there's what the telescope looked like in 1960, shortly before it was indeed moved to Kitt Peak. Uh, in 1963, the 36-inch telescope was removed from the original Stewart Dome. Anyway, there's the 36-inch telescope, which is now up on Kitt Peak. Professor, the late Professor Tom Garrels using it there. It's now dedicated to his Space Watch program. Uh, I have to show you this. The 36-inch telescope in the original Stewart Dome was replaced in 1964 by this 21-inch reflector, which we've named after Professor Raymond D. White, Jr. Ray was here from 1964, retired in 99, I think, passed away in 2004. He was, I have his old job. He used to run these public evenings for three decades and was really in charge of our undergraduate education program. Professor Meinel was our third director. I wanted to show you some of the highlights of Stewart Observatory over the 90 years, and I don't have much time to do it. But I wanted to mention that Professor Meinel, our third director who passed away last year, um, was really responsible for bringing in NSF money, National Science Foundation money, he replaced uh, Professor Carpenter when he died of a heart attack. Professor Bach was our fourth director, and he was responsible for the building of this 90-inch telescope, which was the real workhorse of Stewart Observatory in the 1970s and the 1980s. Professor Ray Wyman, who actually discovered the first gravitationally lensed quasar, was our fifth director in the early 70s, and he laid the groundwork for the Montfournier Telescope. Notice we don't do domes anymore. And it was Stewart Observatory that was involved in the first such modern telescope design back in 1979. In 2000, the six individual mirrors were replaced by a single mirror. Peter Stridmatter, our sixth director, I think holds the record for the longest serving department head here at the University of Arizona. And he was responsible for leading our efforts. Oh, I had to show Frank Lowe because we do a lot of infrared astronomy. And there's some more of our infrared astronomers in days gone by, Marsha Ricci, Roger Thompson. 
And because we wanted to bring our infrared astronomers home from Lunar Planetary Lab, we built this addition to Steward in 1983, the Mirror Lab. That big mirror that you saw in the 2000 revamp of the multiple mirror telescope made here. Look at all these mirrors, starting with the Vatican mirror. Uh, Roger Angel's idea to make lightweight big mirrors. And we're still in the business of doing that. Um, we tragically lost one of our members. I was a grad student back in 1987 uh, when uh, Mark Aronson uh, tragically died on Cape Peak. But you know, every 18 months we hold a lecture in his honor. And we've done a pretty good job of picking Aronson lecturers. Two of them have gone on to win Nobel Prizes. So, yeah. And uh, I, I always want to remember Mark. In 1992, we further extended the building over here. And then in 2000, the fifth floor was put on this extension. And I need to turn it over to my colleague, but I just, I'll let it close in a moment. But I just wanted to show you some of the telescopes that we now uh, operate at radio frequencies. Uh, the large binocular telescope on Mount Graham. In the future, we're looking to be involved in the Large Synoptic Telescope. Uh, it's going to be a revolution in astronomy, what the Synoptic Telescope is going to do. And we're also involved in the Giant Magellan Telescope project. But I want to come back to something this gentleman said. He said it 90 years ago tomorrow from his dedication speech, A.E. Douglas. Many people ask, is the observatory finished? I answer, no, it's only just begun. It is only complete in the sense that it is finally workable. A dedication like this symbolizes the completion of a material part, but a dedication is dual in being part material and part spiritual. The material part of the building is brick and steel and glass, which you see. The spiritual part is the living human force which enters this observatory and makes it live. In this ceremony, we dedicate ourselves to the perpetuation of this human force, which is nothing less than the soul residing in the physical structure. I want this steward observatory to live, and in living it must grow, and in growing it must produce results. Its uses for classes is fine, its use for the public is fine, but it will not live without scientific results. In concluding, I wish to leave you with a more general view. This installation is to be devoted to scientific research. Scientific research is business foresight on a large scale. It is knowledge obtained before it is needed. Knowledge is power, but we cannot tell which fact in the domain of knowledge is the one which is going to give the power. And we therefore develop the idea of knowledge for its own sake confident that some one fact or training will pay for all of the effort. This, I believe, is the essence of education, wherever such education is not strictly vocational. The student learns many facts and has much training. He can only dimly see which fact and which training will be of eminent use to him, but some special part of his education will take root in him and grow and pay for all of the effort which he and his friends have put into it. So it is with the research institutions. In this observatory, I sincerely hope and expect that the boundaries of human knowledge will be advanced along astronomical lines. I love to think that if Professor Douglas could join us today, he'd be very happy and he'd be proud. Thank you. Forward and backwards is just forward. And All right, great. All right. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I think that was a great, a great talk by Tom there. Um, I'm actually going to talk about a, a, a relatively small telescope, um, one that perhaps uh, A.E. Douglas wouldn't be so thrilled about, but I, I, I think it was actually a, it's a wonderfully important telescope, and it, it happens. 
uh, that this is the first time in a very, very long time, probably um, uh, could be on the order of 100 years, that it's actually come back down to Tucson, and you have a chance to look at it and look through it tonight yourselves. So this is kind of an exciting event uh, for us at Steward. The telescope is the second oldest telescope in the state of Arizona, at least at a, that's being used in an observatory. And it's the 1888 5-inch Clark refractor. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about it today. And the last picture that Tom showed you, you could see Douglas beside um, the 36-inch uh, reflector, uh, which, of course, using a reflecting mirror. And for the first year, as Tom pointed out, uh, Douglas had the telescope here in, in, in the observatory dome, but he did not have the mirror. So for the first year, actually, they went through and they made sure it was balanced and they got the pointing right. These are difficult things to do with a large telescope. And the only actual optic that they had was, of course, the 5-inch objective here. And so uh, Douglas has spent a fair bit of time with his own eyeball uh, looking through this particular finding telescope. So this was the finder telescope that they used uh, for the entire lifetime of the 36-inch telescope. And back in the days before computer drives, et cetera, you really used the finding scope a lot. So unlike the main mirror, which was sometimes looked through uh, directly with the eyeball, the finder was used a fair bit. Anyways, I'd, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the history of, of Clark refractors. H how many people in the audience have heard of a Clark refractor before? Okay, so, so a, fair, a fair number of people. Um, but but I, I think it's worth going into a little bit. They're, they're, they're very exciting telescopes, especially if you're a fan of antique telescopes. They're perhaps the, 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 the most valuable of, of all the antique telescopes in, in the sense that uh, the Clarks were fantastic telescope makers. And, and it really was a family effort. Uh, Alvin Clark and his two sons uh, worked together uh, in, in the case of his son's lives, their, their whole life. And for him, he came to it after a period of time as a, a, a portrait painter. He had a very good eye. He could see very small details. And from these details, he could understand exactly how to paint a portrait correctly. And at the same time, he could recognize flaws in, in a lens. And uh, he, he passed on this, this training to his sons as well, and they carried on uh, the company. And so for the last half of uh, the 19th century, this was the telescope maker in America. It's actually kind of an exciting thing, because up until uh, the Clarks, uh, America wasn't really producing very accurate scientific uh, equipment of any type. And, and in fact, almost always colleges like Harvard would go out and buy from Germany or you'd buy from France. So the Clarks were the first Americans to develop complicated scientific equipment. And so in a way, a Clark uh, means uh, an awful lot. It was the first real high-quality piece of equipment made at some level in America. So that, that's a very exciting uh, event. And you, you get a chance to look through a Clark with your own eyeball uh, tonight, if, you, if you'd like, because we just have the Clark up there. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. So uh, long story short, not only did they make relatively small refractors, but they made the biggest refractors in the world, and they have still not been uh, surpassed. For example, the 1 meter, the 1.02 meter uh, at Yerkes is the biggest refractor uh, in the world, and still is. Of course, that's because uh, we build bigger telescopes now that are reflectors. Uh, but, but back in the day, these, these were very powerful telescopes. How, how was our 5-inch our actually fabricated? Well, well, this is actually kind of neat. There was a, an article, the, the, the cover article, in the 1887 Scientific American, which showed, uh, I don't, I think this is actually etching, showing the, the workers. And these probably were, in fact, the two fellows who made our Clark 5-inch, because the 5-inch was made uh, probably right around then. That, well, that's a little bigger than a 5-inch objective, but they were working on it. You can see it's very uh, high-class, clean-room kind of environment. It was once remarked that there was a hen living in one corner of their lab. So <laughs> what's remarkable, unlike the optical labs we have today, this is all based. It was steam-powered. These uh, tables would turn, and then the workers would move um, the lenses around. And they would, this is uh, one of the uh, pitches here, and they would fill it with uh, one of the uh, laps, and they'd fill it with uh, pitch, and that would rub down on the glass. 
to a fine detail, and they would test it themselves. They were excited about the fact that Harvard paid $12,000 uh, back in the, the first half of the 19th century for their, their German uh, refractor. And uh, they thought, well, gee, maybe, maybe we can actually make a living at this. Um, the reason why the Clarks, are, you know, the, the point was they, they knew they couldn't make a living at it unless they made the very best telescopes. They had to make telescopes better than anyone else in the world. And how they did this was quite interesting. The first thing, of course, is you have to take care of uh, uh, chromatic aberration. They used the classic prescription of using the first objective, the first element in the objective would be crown glass, uh, and then the next would be flint. So you would, the two glasses, instead of making red, green, blue, the second glass would make red, green, uh, blue, and the two glasses cancel together so that you get more or less um, a, a clear, sharp focus that has no color, no halo, no rainbow halo around what you're looking at. And this was critically important that they had these achromatic uh, doublet objectives. And they made, they made the best. And in fact, tonight, if you go up and take a look at the telescope, you can compare the five-inch Clark to a three-inch that's beside it, which is sort of the finder of the telescope right now. And you'll see the three-inch has, has pretty marked chromatic aberration, but the, the Clark does not. And that's really a neat little history lesson in telescope making. They also use a slight air gap here, and they make slightly different uh, figures here on, uh, between the, the positive and negative lenses so they wouldn't get a ghost, which was really typical of these air-spaced objectives before because the light would bounce around and you'd get this big ghost image uh, lighting up your, your view. So these were really, they were really way ahead of their time making high-contrast telescopes. And uh, they, they, they really had thought it all out. Plus it made cleaning it a little bit easier too. So why were the Clark um, objectives so good? I mean, other people were making acromats, and they didn't invent this. Uh, well, one of the reasons is that the, the glass at the time wasn't very good. They would use a, a, a polarized light to look at the blanks, and they would understand which blanks were workable and which were hopeless. A lot of them kind of looked like this. They had stresses and striations, and they had all sorts of physical deformities. And they had to design the actual shape of the lens, not not to a perfect spherical shape, but slightly aberrated so that they would compensate for these aberrations. So each uh, Clark objective was handmade, literally, uh, and, and it had a very specific figure to try to cancel out these variations. Another thing they did that a lot of people didn't do is this uh, on the back of the flint, which would normally be just a flat surface, they added a little bit of power to that too. So they had four surfaces to, to actually try to make a perfect image out of. And they spent a lot of time testing. <laughs> and uh, in fact, they dug a 230-foot dark tunnel in the basement of their, their lab slash house, uh, their factory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And what they were able to do uh, with that long, dark tunnel, they put a little point source at one end, and then they would look at, at say, it's a candle with a little pinhole in front of it, and they would look at that little pinhole, it kind of looked like a star, and they would look at the image in and out of focus, and they would also use a, a small um, a blocker to, to move across it back and forth. It, it's sort of very similar to a, a, a Foucault uh, knife edge test. What's interesting about it is the Clarks invented the knife edge test before Foucault. I mean, it was, it was kind of amazing. They had no real formal training in optics, but they just invented basically ways they invented curvature sensing, what we would probably call something similar to pyramid sensing. They were way ahead of their time in wavefront sensing. They wrote down nothing, they published nothing. There's very little known about how they did it, but they sort of just had a feel for it. And they would then mark on the lens uh, what parts of the lens had to be further rubbed down with red pen, a, a red sort of pitch-like uh, marking, and then it'd go up in the lab, and they'd work on it that day, and then they'd go down at night and test it again. And it would go through these cycles, much like what we do at the Steward Mirror Lab with our giant uh, mirrors. And in this process, they, they made very, very accurate uh, mirrors, uh, lenses. So uh, how does Steward fit into all of this? How did Steward wind up with an 1888 Clark? Uh, actually, to be totally honest, I'm not really sure. Uh, all I can tell you for sure, when, the, when, when, when this little guy was, say, on the order of 32 years old, it appeared on the side of the, 30, uh, of the 36 inch. There it is, right there. 
and uh, at uh, Warner and Swayze, who, who built the 36-inch. And, and, you know, maybe because it was the all-American telescope, they, 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 I guess they'd be damned if they weren't going to use an American finder scope on it, too. So there's a fine American finder scope, a Clark. Now, we suspect that perhaps um, the Clark, the five-inch Clark, might have already been in the possession of A. Douglas, but, but there's, there's absolutely no uh, real proof of this. And uh, it's, it's a bit... It's a little bit of a, a fuzzy picture. Maybe some people in the audience have a better idea than us where, how this wound up. Uh, because after all, it was, quite a, it was almost, well, not an antique, but it was an older telescope finder when they mounted it on this brand new 36-inch. Here's a zoomed-in picture, and you can see it is classically the outline of a Clark. So that was very neat for us to, to have realized that. And, um, but this was not unusual. If you've made a very good telescope, then it was not at all unusual for the finder on that telescope to be of the highest quality. After all, your finder had to be a very, very good optical quality so that you could you know, basically point your larger telescope in the right direction and lock in on, say, a faint object or something along those lines. So it was very important that it was high quality. Uh, for example, the Lowell 24-inch Clark used the 6-inch Clark uh, that was previously owned by Lowell, uh, which was built in 1880, uh, as its finder. So there, there was sort of this history of, of using Clarks as finders on larger telescopes. And Douglas must have been familiar and aware of this. He probably looked many times to the 6-inch six, six Clark at Lowell and thought, okay, well, it makes sense. We'll put a 5-inch Clark on our 36-inch. And so that, that was kind of neat. And after all, that 6-inch was very important. It was what... Uh, Douglas used in his big site campaign where he established a little observatory up in Flagstaff. And so in a way that these sort of six and five inch Clarks were really what got astronomy going in Arizona. So as far as I'm concerned, this is the second oldest professional scope in Arizona. However, uh, it kind of got lost. Uh, it's, it's sort of knowledge of it kind of disappeared until uh, fairly recently. In, in 2002, when uh, this was, of course, the 36-inch had become the Space Watch Telescope, which was discovering all sorts of exciting, just thousands of asteroids, and to some degree understanding, you know, whether there were any near-Earth asteroids that could be dangerous for life here on Earth, a very important mission. The Finding Telescope was becoming less and less important as the field of view by the Space Watch Telescope with modern CCDs was getting to be quite large, and it was an automatic telescope. Therefore, the finding telescope wasn't being used nearly as much. And uh, Mom McMillan's group realized, well, you know, this is actually quite a valuable telescope, but it was painted this hideous red color, and they actually painted right over the beautiful scripting saying, you know, 1888 Clark. There's a paintbrush went in there, and, you know, this is early on, of course. This is probably at Warner and Swayze, uh, but it got covered in paint. Probably hadn't been revealed until. Uh, the LPL Space Watch group actually realized what they had, and they, they did a really nice job restoring it. Here you can see uh, Joe did a really nice job leading this effort, and, and there you can see Philbert's actually turning it, and with Brasso getting rid of that nasty red paint. And it wound up looking more like this, and what I, the image I keep showing here on the bottom after that. Then it went back up uh, to Kitt Peak, to the 36-inch, where you could see for the last sort of 10 years, this is what the side of the uh, telescope looked like. It's certainly the oldest telescope at Peak was the finder there. And uh, but we decided perhaps it would be nice if it came back down here again. And voila, we brought the just now in celebration of Stewart's 90th birthday, we brought the Clark back down here. And this is a picture that was taken all of about three hours ago. <laughs> Because it's really just, just happened this week. Uh, and this is on the roof of the astronomy building. It's just basically up through there. I'm not sure what route, but it's basically the same route that you would take to get into the 21-inch. You just turn around the other way and go up the other set of stairs into this little dome, which many of you have probably not been in, where the Jeans telescope was located. And we replaced the Zeiss 4-inch with the Clark 5-inch. And, and there you can see a picture of it. And so I think the most exciting thing that I'm going to say in this talk is that, you know, you, if, you, if, if, if hopefully we can all get a chance to go up there and take a look at it, it's a beautiful telescope, and it's a wonderful piece of American scientific history, 
and it's it's also a big part of steward history too so thank you laird And uh, at the conclusion of uh, Professor Cox's lecture, I will give you instructions on how you get to that telescope. But now for part three of our triple team. You've got, we're gonna clip this on you, right? I'd like to introduce Professor Emeritus W. John Cox, who was a professor, when did John arrive? 1968. And he has been here ever since. And he is, uh, I remember taking a class in well, general relativity from him. very much for coming. And, oh, I'm on now? Yeah, so now Professor John Cock. <laughs> Thanks. I, I have to say that the, the work that I'm going to talk about tonight uh, was done with the original 36-inch telescope, not down here on campus, but on Kitt Peak. And I did not know this, but... The Alvin Clark 5-inch refractor, indeed, was the finder telescope uh, that was on the 36-inch telescope when we used it. I had no idea. <laughs> okay, thank you, Tom. Now, I have to figure out how to use some of this stuff. I'm unfamiliar with the setup. Which do you want to go to first? I want to go to the slides first. Okay, click on that. Okay. There you go. Great. And then that will advance to the next slide. Good, very good. Okay. The topic tonight, now changing gears, we move from astronomical in instrumentation to a result, uh, a research result that I and two friends, two colleagues of mine uh, did on Kitt Peak. Uh, And I was very happy to hear Tom quote from Douglas's, uh, I guess, a presentation right, about research, because research is really, as Douglas said, work that you do now, the results of which you do not have any idea whether they're going to work out to be useful or not. And we have to go with that because uh, research results that are turning out this year, next year, may be used 10, 15 years in the future for unimaginable uh, sorts of things. Okay. Uh, the particular research that I'm going to talk about now has to do with pulsars and the discovery on Kitt Peak of the optical emissions from what was known at the time to be a radio pulsar. I have to say a little bit about what pulsars are, otherwise the whole thing is going to sound a little bit empty. Uh, pulsars are the spinning, collapsed cores of supernovas. And they are very, very compact, and they spin because of the collapse, they spin very, very, very fast and are very highly magnetized. And as a result, you get from a supernova explosion, what, I've, what, I, what we're looking at here is the sort of layered, onion layer core of a massive star just before it collapses down to the compact neutron star stage. And when that happens, the core starts spinning very rapidly and being very highly magnetized, we have a kind of a dynamo. So this spinning electromagnetic gyro, as it were, spits out all kinds of interesting electromagnetic radiation in the radio and in the optical and infrared and also uh, in the X-ray and gamma ray parts of the spectrum. And the reason that we see it as pulsing, you can tell a bit from this what's going on. If, the, if this is the rotation axis of this collapsed star, then if you are along the line of sight, looking down the barrel, as it were, into this magnetic field, 
you can see as the thing rotates, you see the beam flash by. So pulsars are not actually pulsating. They are simply rotating. And like a lighthouse, you see the beam flash by. The particular event that sparked the discovery that my friends and I made was the discovery in early 1968 of a radio signal which seemed to come uh, as a pulsed signal from the vicinity of the Crab Nebula. Now, the Crab Nebula is a well-known supernova remnant, was well-known to be a supernova remnant at the time, and it is located right here in the star map, right between the horns of Taurus the Bull. And this is what it looks like if you see it through a moderately large astronomical telescope. Uh, this is the nebula itself, and this is the remains of the explosion now spread out that was visible in the, I think, the 11th century. The explosion was bright enough so that it appeared visible in the daytime. It was recorded by Chinese astronomers. Uh, not, we don't have any records of the explosion uh, as being seen by European observers. Uh, that was in the, you know, the Dark Ages, and so we were all involved in Europe in uh, doing battle with each other. Well, this star right here in the middle of the nebula was known to be a very peculiar star. Uh, it did not have the usual uh, sort of spectrum of what you would think of uh, would accompany a normal star. And so uh, I had the idea that since this radio signal seemed to come from somewhere in the vicinity of the Crab Nebula, and was, well, I thought that it was, must be somehow associated with this very peculiar star in the middle of the nebula. And you can see that star optically, right? This is an optical photograph. And so the thought was to try to look for pulses in the optical part of the spectrum from this thing. Now, this is what the nebula looks like taken uh, by the Hubble Space Telescope. It's really a very complex kind of thing. <coughs> this is what the radio signal looks like right here. And what we found was that the optical signal uh, would look like this. Uh, and subsequently, X-ray and gamma-ray emission was discovered from this thing. Uh, but for now, I want to focus on the idea that at the time, we were discouraged from actually making this kind of observation uh, at an optical telescope. Uh, there were several rather prominent astrophysicists when asked whether we should do this or not, they said, no, no, don't waste your time doing it. Uh, it just won't turn out. Fortunately, we didn't listen to them. Uh, and by we, I have to say, I mean, uh, Mike Disney, and Don Taylor joined me in this effort. They, I'm sure they would like to have been here tonight, but I have not, <coughs> excuse me, not been able to make contact with them in time for them to, you know, participate in any way uh, in this. So, um, let me turn now to actually what happened uh, with this thing, let's see. Right. So now we can okay, go to the website in AIP. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we got the website here. This is material from the American Institute of Physics, which has uh, all this interesting history uh, about the discovery that we made. Uh, this was 
narrated by Philip Morrison, who actually was my uh, graduate advisor when I was going to school at Cornell. And the, here are uh, pictures. Here's a picture of me. Yeah, that's me. I've lost the mustache and I've gotten a haircut. Uh, this is Mike Disney down here. Uh, Don Taylor actually isn't in this uh, presentation as such. Now, here's the 36-inch telescope. And somewhere here, I guess this is the Clark refractor, right? The film clip of, of Douglas and, and colleagues looking down through this telescope that was installed here on campus really brought back some memories for me because Disney and I were stumbling around in the dark on top of Kitt Peak, right you know, staring into this thing, this big Newtonian uh, monster, as it were, and we were moving it around with our hands just like uh, the guys in, in the film clip were doing. So that really brought back some memories for me. Okay, here again is a 36-inch telescope. Uh, the interesting thing about this is that, as we will see, I'm going to skip over some of this because uh, there are optical, there are audio, there's an audio clip or two that I want to play, uh, which actually recorded our voices when the discovery was made. Uh, we had no idea that this recording was being made. And the effect of having actually spontaneously recorded a discovery like this on tape is really quite, quite astonishing. So let me... It's in another window here. It is yeah, right. okay. There it is. You want to play it right now? Yeah, sure. Let's play this. This next observation will be observation number 18. You've got a bleeding pulse here. Hey. Wow. You don't suppose that's really happening. Can't be. It's right back in the middle of the period. It's going to be right back in the middle of the scale. It's really looks something from here at the moment. Hmm. It's growing too. It's going up the side a bit too. Yeah. I don't know what it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's like a bleeding pulse. It's growing, John. It is. Look. It is. You're right. Folks, I'm sorry. I don't think this is going to work. This is working very well. Uh, the problem is that the sound quality is quite bad. But I want to go back to the website uh, before. Okay, here we go. Here we are. And just say that the the pulses that Mike Disney is referring to on this clip look kind of like this when they first appeared uh, to us at the telescope. The signal coming from the pulsar, the optical signal, was so faint that we had to superimpose a great many pulses in a small computer to build up a more or less noise-free uh, picture of what the pulses actually look like. And this was really kind of a tough thing to do because the pulses were coming at the rate of one every, of 30 times a second. So it was really kind of hard to get the instrumentation going uh, to reveal this pulse at the telescope while we were doing the observation. But here it is. This is the first pulse from the pulsar that we observed on the screen of this cat computer of average trend. 
experience. And from then on, uh, we, kept, we did some more tests and made some more uh, observations and finally got the courage to call up the director, Bart Bach, who was in Chile at the time. Well, we didn't call him by phone, actually. We sent him uh, a, I guess it was a, would be a telex or a telegram at that point. And Bach was very disturbed. Uh, he <laughs> was quite sure that we'd made a hideous mistake and that the observatory's reputation would go right down uh, the tubes after <laughs> our mistake. Turned out to be okay, though, and the upshot of it all was that this was really quite an, an astonishing and interesting thing to have done because it was the only time at that point that an optical signal had been observed from a radio pulsar. Uh, some other pulsars that came along that were discovered later actually also showed optical pulses. But this was really a, a first for the observatory and certainly a first for us. I was and still am a theoretician. Um, I love mathematics, I love physics, and I really felt out of place doing this very complex and difficult observation at the 36 telescope on Kitt Peak. I would have thought, uh, you know, Mike Disney was actually in the same kind of category. He too is a uh, more of a theoretical mathematical astronomer. Uh, Don Taylor actually had a fair amount of telescope experience at that point, but for most of the observation he remained downtown because he had classes and exams that he had to deal with at that point. So Disney and I were alone braving the elements, and this is mid-January on Kitt Peak, uh, temperatures going down certainly to zero or even below, and at that time uh, doing observations at a telescope at night meant that you were exposed to the elements. Nowadays, that's not true because largish observatories are fitted with control rooms that are heated, and so they don't, the astronomers who go up there uh, to make observations now don't really have to deal uh, with st standing around in the cold so much. And in fact, a lot of observing now is done from downtown remotely. Well, I think that about covers, oh yeah, there you go. Uh, that's us. There's Don Taylor uh, on the far right there. Uh, this is our, hmm, whoops, uh-oh. That's okay. You want to press that one right there. Oh, okay. That's the laser pointer. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. yeah, this is the average transient uh, computer. Um, this is a tape recorder that we use to record the signal coming from the instrumentation, and it was just by chance that the night assistant did not pull the plug uh, announcing the audio all the way out from the recorder. And so our voices were recorded at that point, going, you know, right actually into the recorder that was supposed to have been taking data. Well, it turned out the data was going on the tape also. Uh, we used that just as a backup. So that would not, uh, it didn't actually spoil the data collection. But this is how we happen to uh, record this, you know, wonderfully spontaneous moment of discovery, as the American Institute of Physics website calls it. Okay, well, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much, John. Um, I, I guess I, I would ask if there anyone that has a burning question they would like to ask any of us. Yes, we'll take one or two questions.
Where did the Clarks get their glass from? Who, who, who supplied their glass for their optics? Could you speak into the, the, the other, the lavalier mic? Yeah, I, I actually was afraid someone was going to ask that. Um, so it was indeed the All-American Telescope for everything but the glass that was supplied for the objective of the Clark. Um, you know, the reason why it was the All-American Telescope, it was so hard to get good glass in America, and, and, it, and it was a great feat. And World War I was the main reason I think it was American glass. But um, back in, you know, 1888, there was really no good American glass to be used. They tried to use some American suppliers, but in the end, uh, that glass was supplied either from England or Paris. Any other questions for I, any of the three of us? Okay, I need to explain to you how to get to the Clark Telescope, all right? By the way, our Raymond E. White Jr. 21-inch reflector is open as well. Uh, if you go in the old Stewart Observatory building as if you're going to the 21-inch, after you go up the first flight of stairs, you'll see a sign that directs you to the catwalk. You go through that door, which is open, go across the catwalk into the red brick building, and then follow the hallway straight ahead to the next staircase, where I have a big red arrow pointing up the second staircase to the top of those stairs, and you'll find one of our undergraduate telescope assistants there to uh, show you the moon with the Alvin Clark Telescope. Also, in the lobby, uh, two of our staff, uh, Rachel and Kim, will be serving birthday cake and punch. So, you're welcome to go to the main uh, lobby for cake. You can go up all the way up the stairs to the 21-inch telescope, which is open for viewing, or follow the signs to the Clark Telescope. And we hope you enjoyed this evening. Uh, we'll be back next September with the public evening series. If there are any students that are here for an assignment, I'll stamp your assignments down here. And we wish you uh, a very, very good summer. Take care. <laughs>